2: Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. Uh, Look ahead to the county season. The county season's here and it's absolutely pouring with rain. Actually, I've just been at Lord's and the nursery is basically flooded. So I don't know what the prospects are for Middlesex's first game of the season on Friday against Northants. I'm very pleased to say we've got Simon Mann back in blighty at last how are you feeling absolutely
1: fine lovely weather though isn't it new zealand five weeks i think it rained twice the whole time the cricket was fantastic and engrossing come back i think great start of the county championship season spring
2: has sprung and it's pouring with rain it's rained for about 36 hours in london sprung is is about right actually sprung a leak i think and you've had to make quick acquaintance with your raincoats and no no wellington boots do you own a pair of wellingtons i don't i have to say i live in london I do own a pair of Wellington boots. But but you're a a Bristolian, aren't you? That's why. (laughs) It's just for walking the dog. Anyway, very pleased also to welcome Isabel Westbury today, uh, who is the ECB Commentator of the Year last year in domestic cricket. Very experienced commentator, former Middlesex spinner as well. And Izzy, well, you'll be feeling good at the moment because England women are doing a lot better than England men, certainly in India.
3: Yeah, it was nice to wake up this morning and, and see the success that they've had. Nice to have been covered, perhaps, but they didn't quite get the rights to it. But if you want to learn how to, to spin the ball in India, I think uh, England women are a good place to start.
2: Well, we'll talk about the England women and the domestic game as far as the, the women are concerned uh, at some stage in this podcast. What we're going to do is look ahead to the county season... And also, uh, we've got Jack Brooks, the Yorkshire fast bowler, on the show as well, talking about preparation and actually a little bit about ball tampering as well and whether it goes on in county cricket. Uh, Don't forget, this podcast is now in association with The Cricketer Magazine, and this month's issue actually has a double page spread on every county for the first time ever. It's got something like 50 pages of county coverage. And if you want to get a, a cheap subscription to the Cricketer magazine, you go to www.thecricketer.com forward slash podcast and you get a subscription deal if you go to that website address. So make sure you follow that up and get the Cricketer magazine to accompany your journey around the, the county season. So... Essex are the champions, of course, of last year, and they're taking on Yorkshire uh, up at Headingley to start the season. I don't know whether they're going to get any play, but actually Yorkshire haven't had much in the way of preparation so far. That's been one of the problems for all the teams, I guess. What was it like in your day then? I mean, when, when did you start preparing for a new season? Well, it's funny, actually, because I've just been at Lords today, as I said, and the Middlesex office used to be this shack behind the pavilion... And you went in to find out what was the, the plan for the week uh, pre-season and basically fell down a hole as soon as you went through the door because the floor was, was rotting. And the, the plan for the week normally pre-season was a week at Barclays Bank Gym in Ealing, which is a dusty gym where we had to do burpees and sprints and we had people like Phil Edmonds saying, is this sprinting really necessary? I am a fantastic bowler, you know. And there'd be a lot of kind of five-a-side football and very little in terms of cricket that was anything related to cricket at all, a lot of eating at lunchtime, huge amounts of food consumed, and then a little bit of sort of light training in the afternoon, then off home. We did that for five days, then we were in the nets for five days, and then it was the season. I mean, compare that to what they do now, the the intense preparation they have now. Then it was non-existent. So would you have trained over the
1: winter? Would you have played in weekly nets over the winter? You know, every week go along to Finchley indoor
2: school? Sometimes, but uh, it was not a particularly important part of the winter. I mean, a lot of players went abroad and played, obviously, and played club cricket. That's what I did. But you you could go on a Wednesday night to Finchley. It was like bowling there on sort of glass because the ball just scooted off and people just hit through the line and it wasn't proper practice. It became a very inadequate way of preparing for the season, really. An evening of... A bit of bowling and a bit of batting once a week, that was all.
1: What about you, Isabel? How do you prepare for a new season? Would you would you net during the winter?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny in, in a way because I was at university where one of the MCCUs were in Oxford and I was one of the two girls with about 18 other boys. No guesses as to why. That was quite fun. Um, and we they have quite a weird sort of inverted season because their biggest matches are right now. When they're trying to take on the big guns, of the first-class counties, okay, it's all been washed out. But it meant that they were building up, building up, building up to this early season, April stage. So the most intense practice was going on in sort of December, January, February. So I think that the MCCU certainly are trying to mirror themselves as a sort of first-class county setup, and it's changed so much in the last five years. Even even if you go back 30 years, you know, it's a, it's a completely different ball game um, in the women's game. Um, I think we had October off. I think the end of the season was September. We had October off, and then you started with the fitness. Um, I only retired last year, so I'm sure it's got even more intense. But, uh, you know, we're all amateur in the domestic women's game, and we'd be doing fitness up till December and then back in with the skills and stuff um, January, February, March. And, and Simon, as you know, Nancy, as your, your daughter, would have been doing a lot of that as well.
2: They, they have to do the, this thing called the yo-yo test now, which is the the successor to the bleep test, which is endless running between
0: mm.
2: points and, you know, a continually faster tape going or music going that you have to fit the the, the sprints in between two bleeps or two sounds or whatever. I mean, the, the fitness levels these guys uh, are indulging in now. I mean, I remember watching Warwickshire working out uh, in February last year and, you know, they were doing all the things that you'd associate with sort of weightlifters or olympic athletes they were they had one of the things they had to do was push this huge piece of metal up and down which which looks like uh like like a great big cupboard you know full of bricks pushing that up and down and the huge ropes that they have to sort of flap you know which you see sometimes in gyms and bouncing tires lorry tires up and down the nets i mean god if you're trying to get phil edmonds or mike gatting to do that 20 years ago you would have had no chance but I, I suppose, it's has it improved the game? I don't know. Well, that is a really good question. Let's have a listen to Jack Brooks, actually.
1: He tells us how he has prepared or has been preparing for the new season.
4: And this winter's probably been my most full-on winter in the 10 years I've had as a pro. And, and looking back about how I started 10 years ago at Northants, so like in 2009, um, even that winter was completely different and not as full-on as it is now. Um, this winter, we have been in Five days a week, from about mid-November onwards, Monday to Friday. Um, some form of fitness every day, um, and cricket a couple of times a week. Um, the senior bowlers didn't have to start bowling till a couple of weeks just before Christmas, um, but the batters were certainly hitting balls before that. And it was up to the bowlers if they wanted to hit balls. So, but if, I mean, it's about ten to fifteen hours of fitness a week, um, which you, that's how the modern game is going now. You've just got to try and be as fit as as you possibly can look after yourself, um, the lads have all been together a lot more. Um, so I suppose you, you're a bit more bonding or or it can go the other way. You get a bit bored of each other and annoyed of each other after a while. But um, it's all good fun. I, I quite enjoy it. You're a professional sportsman at the end of the day. And if you're doing it sort of only five days a week for a couple of hours a day, you shouldn't really be complaining that much. But we didn't have any greenhouses or sheds put up at Headingley. Um, we just built up towards <coughs> going away to um, in in March. We had two weeks out there together. And I was lucky enough to get away for 10 days to Cape Town in February, um, along with our academy and a pro coach who went and took a group of youngsters out. So I was going out, official capacity as a coach, but I was able to get outdoors, do some bowling, some batting, um, and just get some sun on my back and sort of freshen up a little bit. Um, So I've had an extra sort of 10 days more than most of our lads, if they haven't been away with sort of England or playing 2020 leagues in the winter and stuff. But um, I think it's important to try and get away at some point. You can time it well. Um, but the, uh, the fitness block I, I did, which I found very beneficial, of being injured last sort of pre season, I needed to get my, my body back up to a, a good level of, of fitness and really be able to smash this early part of the season.
2: He's certainly much fitter, Jack Brooks, than when he first started playing for Northampton, actually, before he played for Yorkshire. But it sounds like the kind of I remember um, the England player Mike Hendrick once saying when he was playing for Derbyshire and they had to do this kind of thing in miniature and him saying, well, we might not be be the best team in the world, but we'll be able to get the ball back if someone hits it out the ground the quickest, uh, just because they were doing so much running. But it seems as if it's perhaps gone a bit too far. One former England
1: international, quite well-known, I'm not going to name him because he he told me in in confidence, he just said, this is absolutely ridiculous what we're doing. We're doing far too much of this fitness work in the the closed season. Players actually need time to, well, have downtime really, recuperate from what's a long, intense, mentally draining season. And he was saying, it's nonsense.
3: Yeah, I'd agree with that to an extent. I actually um, interviewed Kumar Sangakara a few years ago and he was saying that, He was here to be a batsman and and everything else around it was almost superfluous because he just wanted to bat, bat, bat all day and and do that well. And if, if he was reasonably fit, that was fine. But I think that the difficulty there is we're talking about some of the best players in the world. Kumasangakara, it's fine just to be a batsman because he is the best. Uh, an England international, absolutely. But what about those ones that are trying to get into the first team of a county setup where the small margins, if you're looking at two separate players, you know, you're going to pick the fitter one, aren't you? And I think it's, that's what now everyone's trying to find that those extra things that will make that better team as a whole. And if you have one or two players that are on the margins, then. It is the fitness that counts, and as a whole, the team will rise above. So, I mean, I know from my own experience, I was never a superstar. So fitness was quite a big aspect for me because it meant that I would always have that sort of advantage over perhaps another player. So I think it's, it's important that it develops. I think a lot more cricket-specific training is happening as well. So you see guys in the gym now with, with weight programs that will replicate perhaps a bowling action. But having said that, uh, arguably, are we seeing more um, bowlers injured? throughout the season because there is as, as other players have said too much of this going on maybe it's about a happy balance
2: Actually it's also of course the, the issue is, is going away as Yorkshire have and other counties have and playing abroad in they went to Pocherstrum and other counties have been you know, in Barbados or whatever the trouble is, you, you know, you get really hardened and match fit playing over there, and then you come back to England and look at the site out here now, and it's eleven degrees and it's pouring with rain, and the grass is going to be like an ice rink. And that's when, having really, really hardened your muscles and, and got absolutely match fit, you then slip on a tiny bit of wet stuff and rip a groin or something. So it's all sometimes this sort of level of preparation is counterproductive. How did you get fitter just by bowling? Bowling, I, I, I mean. I know this is a really old school argument, but I think you get fit. Bowling is such a weird operation, a, a, you know, a very unnatural action, and you just have to keep doing it. And it, there's there's muscle memory involved, and obviously, I, actually, you know, the, the year I got the fittest and the fastest was by just playing every day in Sri Lanka. In fact, when I was 19, and just actually the the, the sheer mechanics of playing every day, bowling every day, got me fitter and faster.
1: Something like Fred Truman, yours?
2: Well, I was going to say Alec like Bedser because I asked him once uh, how he stayed fit for bowling, because he famously bowled about, you know, two million overs in a season. And he said, digging. I went digging. I helped my dad on the building site, digging. So there's another solution. Well, those are the preparations. Who's actually going to win the thing? Who's
1: going to win the first division? I mean, last season, it was won by Essex who came up. The season before, it was won by
2: Middlesex you've got relegated down. i mean yeah. it's so hard to predict eight, well, it's teams. eight teams that's the problem isn't it the, you know you're not very far away from relegation uh, uh, and you might be in fourth spot and have say 80 points and the last spot has 50 points and one game can change that almost and and you're suddenly you're dot near bottom of the table. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a lottery. Mm. Well, two points covered
1: four clubs last season, and 30 points covered second place to seventh. So basically runners-up. A relegation and Middlesex got relegated and the reason they got relegated, of course, I mean, it's quite well known, isn't it? Because they had two points deducted for a slow over rate and there was crossbow gate and all that sort of thing down at the over. What, what about you, Izzy? I mean, you, you watch a lot of county cricket. Mm. Who do you fancy for the title or, or, or do you think, like us, it's, it's very hard to predict?
3: Well, I was saying earlier, I think if you, if you win the, the championship, then that's a surefire bet you'll go down next season. Having said that... So you're tipping Essex for yeah, relegation. Essex, Essex you're down. I, I'm afraid that's it, boys. Um, well, looking at Hampshire's recruitment drive you, you might think that they're on to start, oh, well if, if it all um, plays out South Northeast it came as a great acclaim over from Kent but then the moment he signed he's had a pretty lean winter he hasn't scored more than 15 and he's played the Lions he's played North South he played the MCC game um, so he'll have to buck up a little bit having said that Hashim Amla's on their cards the first three months they've got I saw Dale Stein's going to join them for one or two matches in June as well so I think Hampshire are pouring something into it Um, Yorkshire have managed to get, they've got Pajaro over from Knott's I saw him bat last season for Knott's and he seemed to love his time there, loves playing county cricket we're seeing a few Indians come into the the county scene before that so I'd say, yeah, Hampshire, Yorkshire I wonder about Lancashire as
2: well, looking Mm. at their uh, recruits Uh, Keaton Jennings, of course so that would be an interesting uh, sort of match-up Keaton Jennings and Hasim Hamid opening the batting for Lancashire. Great little double act there. Both of them could be, of course, opening for England in the first test on the 24th of, of May. I guess, you know, Alistair Cook will probably still hit, keep his place, but there's plenty of opportunity batting spaces up for grabs. And they've also got Graham Onions from Durham. And, of course, they're now captained by Liam Livingston. So, you know, that's an interesting... Lancashire have always been the team that you... You think should win the championship more often than they do, and uh, th- I mean this is this is a golden opportunity. And
1: there's also Surrey. What about Surrey? They've not won the title since 2002. Nine other counties have done so since then. Uh, and they they they're in the market as well. They they brought in. Quite a lot of players. Vrat Coley's going to play for them, but then this is the problem with county kind of cricket. and you, you recruit players, and then someone like Mitch Marsh, they think they're going to have him for the whole season and then he gets injured. So you, you, you put a lot of eggs in one basket, and I'm not saying Marsh would have won the championship, I'm just saying that you, you, you think at the start of the season, oh, such and such is going to play for them, and then they're injured, and then, you know, they, then they're looking around for someone to replace them, someone you thought was a banker, really top-quality player, and they're, they're out of the scene altogether. That's what makes it so hard to predict.
3: I think to add to that as well is, is what is a county season? Um, I saw something yesterday about comparing the English domestic county season to all the other domestic seasons um, in different countries around the world. But, you know, you've got a portion in April, then you've got a one-off match in May. Then I think there's something in June, yeah, a little bit of county yeah, champs, then yeah. the rest is in September. So, for example, the, all the internationals coming in, there's not going to be a single one that will play the whole way through. There's not going to be a single in- England international that will play the whole way through. So that makes predicting it that much harder. It's a lottery.
1: That's why, actually, it's your... It's your banker players, the guys that play 12,
2: 14 matches. Really, they, they are the players that, that win you the championship. Bench strength. Talk about bench strength in rugby and, and indeed football. So we'll be talking about that in cricket. And actually, I think, you know, going back, obviously, a few years now, but Middlesex, who won four titles in the 1980s, it was about bench strength. It was about people that didn't regularly play. Someone like Keith Brown, for instance, who wasn't a sort of star, but he was a very workmanlike cricketer who could just fit any particular space. He could keep wicket if we were missing a wicket keeper. He could bat at opening the batting if you know, one of the openers was injured or out of the team or whatever. Uh, he could bat in the middle order. You know He could even bowl some, some cheap and cheerful little medium paces. So you want adaptable cricketers who can come in and out when these kind of issues like overseas players being injured or not available, or funny bits of the season, as you say, where you've got three championship matches in the middle of the season and then most of it at the beginning and the end. I wonder if um, Hampshire will be a bit more ambitious with Mason Crane this year because he hardly played this time last year.
1: Yeah, but he's pouring with rain and you need a pitch that is conducive for a, for a leg spin, I, su- I suppose. Well, here's another interesting thing about the championship season or a sort of bizarre thing about the championship season and it, you think about season starting in other sports you know the football season starts you know the first day of the season everyone's sort of looking forward to it the cricket season starts the championship season starts first division two counties are not playing and you've got eight teams as well it's not as if you've got, you, know, you had nine teams where someone was going to miss out where is the Somerset versus Surrey fixture on the fir- in the first round of matches? I expect there's a reason for it. There's something to do with you know, trying to fit it all in and venues and you know, having to play at certain venues and things like that. But it does seem bizarre, doesn't it, that not everyone is playing on the first day
2: of the season when they could do now because you've got a division of eight and a division of ten. And sadly, the, the county season always starts with so a bit of a whimper to it. It's not helped by the weather. If you have a, an April week like this nobody wants to watch and actually probably nobody much wants to play either because you you know sort of staring out at the the clouds and the rain and the drizzle and the puddles and things doesn't make you want to go and play cricket really it's a fair weather game so your theory about finding a roof for cricket grounds is absolutely paramount that thought actually
1: as i was coming to speak to you today that thought came into my mind again roofs we
2: need roofs it's going to save the game well, yeah. And I mean, it's all about money in the end, isn't it? I mean, there must be a strategy for a massive tarpaulin that someone could invent. I mean, down the road here in West London, we've got a huge inflatable tennis centre with eight courts under cover, And it just goes blown up in whenever it is, um, October, and people can play tennis all winter. Beautiful climate. Why can't we do that for cricket? well, obviously bigger fields, that
1: that is a potential problem. But what, what do you think, Izzy? Well,
3: maybe some of those payoffs to the um, stadia that aren't hosting test matches, that could go instead towards a completely different stadium with a nice big bubble over the top.
2: So obviously, roofs is something that, that we need. And after the break, we're going to talk ball tampering again. Welcome back. And we're going to talk in this section about whether there's ball tampering in the county game with Jack Brooks. But before we do that, We should also, Isabel, look at the the women's game, the women's domestic game, because well, one of the reasons that I thought it would be interesting to have you on was because this is the week when Wisden's Almanac is coming out and it's got a woman on the front cover, Anya Shrubsall, who could well be one of the cricketers of the year, well, probably should be one of the cricketers of the year. So is it a big year for women's cricket, given that you won the World Cup last year?
3: Um, it's difficult because it's not going to be one of those sort of momentous, um, something that goes, gets the head headlines and it's going to grab the attention of the media. I think it's almost a sort of consolidating year. What happens on the back of that World Cup? Are we going to see more interest in the next layer down? So the Women's Super League, for example, what's happening on the county circuit? Who are the next people coming through? So I think it will be a, a wait and see, year. a lot of hope, a lot of expectation, whether that will all be fulfilled is, is another question. Um, England, of course, we're talking now on uh, Monday morning when they've just beaten India, in India, um, by more than 100 runs. Um, two spinners took eight wickets. That's one way to, to spin the ball on the subcontinent. Um, and there's a lot to, be, to, be, to look forward to. Uh, Mark Robinson has worked wonders, I think, with the team. He's, he's actually taken quite some audacious steps in the last two years where England were at a, at a similar period, you could argue, that England men's test team are going through now where they're not getting the results that they want. But the argument is, or was then for the woman, they weren't going to change anybody because there was no one good enough coming through. And we're seeing that with England's test team. We're not going to move Alistair Cook because who? where's the next um, opener? We're not going to uh, move Stuart Broad because where's the next person that can swing it at 90 miles an hour? Um, whereas England women, what they decided to do was there's a complete revamp um, and they went for the dacious moves. They, they, the captain Charlotte Edwards went, they had a new coach in, some of the old stalwarts moved on as well with the expectation that there might be a a lean period, there might be a rebuilding period. It might not all go um, rosy to start with, with the intention that hopefully in the next few years onwards, they would get results. And actually the results have come much more quickly and winning the World Cup, I think, is probably as good a result as they could get.
1: Was that all down to Mark Robinson or were there players in the team who felt that the team needed to move on as well?
3: Oh, it was a combination of factors. I mean, I I put a lot at Mark Robinson's step. I think that he took a lot of flack as well at the time when Edwards did step down. I mean, it was definitely his instigation. Um, And I think he he just went with, well, I don't really care what people say about me. It might work. It might not. This is my experience. I'm going to use it. Um, And he was willing to to make the unpopular moves, I think. So... He instigated a lot. I think other key players also moved on at the same period. But I think what a lot of credit has to go to him as well for reinstating some players, perhaps, that had been... Your Tammy Beaumont, for example um you know she was on the cusp of being uh, shown the door Danny Wyatt nobody knew what her place was in the team she she seemed to have this promise but she wasn't converting it and he in the last two years Wyatt's now opening the batting in the T20s in the one day as she's she's you know scored back-to-back hundreds in the T20 internationals Tammy Beaumont was player of the tournament in the um the World Cup um Nat Siver again someone who You'd have thought, God, look at this girl, she's amazing, but wasn't really getting the runs, of the wickets. Is now really turning herself into, if not the best, one of the top three all-rounders in the world. And so I think it's more just adapting the players, and then also bringing in new ones. Um, three new players played, uncapped players have played in England and in India this winter. Katie George, um, Alice Davidson, richards and Briony Smith. And to be honest, it wasn't a great tour for them. Um, whether they'll be in the England setup up or in England first team come a summer, maybe not. But he's tried it. He didn't mind, and even Heather Knight, the captain as well, was, was saying, you know, we might not win all these matches on tour, but what's our next goal is we want to win the T20 World Cup in Barbados in seven, eight months' time. So I think it's this willingness to say... In the short term, there might be a loss. It might not work. But what do we want to get out of this? And I think that's what's almost lost from England men, the test side. I think the one day in T20 is a separate issue. We're well, Not not an issue, actually. It's, it's great. But the test side is what do we want to get in the long run? And I think um, we're not seeing that. Do we, you know, is, are the Ashes, the next Ashes, our next big thing, in which case, you know, we need to have more players playing in Australia. We need to have um, more players playing Red ball cricket. But... That, that sort of focus seems to have been lost from the men's setup.
2: That's true, actually. I, I completely agree with you. And I'm sure the influence of the Keir Super League for the women has been impressive because I suppose what I've gleaned from watching a fair bit of women's cricket is that there is quite often a lack of confidence uh, in the women's game. You know, players that are obviously quite talented but haven't got that self belief. And I think Mark Robinson's encouraged them to express themselves and brought boundaries in to you know, try and tempt batsmen to go over the top and hit sixes rather than be scared to. And and also to, to play on first-class men's grounds or in quite impressive arenas in the Kia Super League to make them realise they're decent cricketers with a bit of a crowd following them. And it's just kind of up the ante a bit in terms of the competition and the abilities and the range of abilities and their ambition. And and you, you can see the... Of dividends paying off now,
3: yeah. And this is funny because there's almost a paradox going on here. In, that in some ways, women are very women's cricket, you want to say, is a different game to men's cricket, but actually, there's a lot of overlap in the way we approach things. Ali Maiden and Mark Robinson, the head coach and, and um, assistant coach thing the England Woman, were invited to go and sort of shadow Trevor Bayliss and Paul Fabrice after the World Cup. And almost, you want to say, why don't you have it the other way around as well? Get them in, get them to see what how the women's setup up works, and so I think we can learn a lot from each other and also from other sports. This is one thing I read a lot about over the winter was in in football, one school of thought as to why England never convert on the international scene is because there 's a development gap where a lot of the big clubs make their sort of younger kids go and play in under eighteen age groups, and whereas on the continent they play in Reserve teams in a men's competition, so because of that, they then experience the pressure, they experience the crowds, they experience a kind of the jostle and the, the sort of you know the physicality, the edge, mm-hmm. and you can convert that to cricket in the men's game. For example, I spoke to Joe Denley over the winter, and he was saying that the, he was playing in the BBL for the first time, and this is you know at the moment really a jobbing domestic cricketer and he said this is the closest that you get to international cricket. And the most that he got out of that, he had a great season there. It wasn't so much, you know, the the quality of the bowling and the batting he was he was contending with. It was being in this filled stadia. It was having that pressure. It was being on T V every single game. And England men need that, and that's perhaps where the new 2020 tournament will come in. And England women need that. And the Kia Super League was is the first attempt. Mm. I don't think it's, it's not what well, it's not going to be the long lasting tournament because they will have to conform to the men's 2020, the new tournament. They they will definitely fall into line with that. It's almost a sort of we have this. Weird three years where we need to get this, have a sort of a stop gap between the county and the international cricket. Kia Super League launched that. You've got a few players out of that your Katie George's, your Bryony Smith that are making a step up into England, which you wouldn't have seen from county cricket beforehand. But I think a lot of the players are men and women very excited about the 2020 tournament because it is that path. It's that path into international cricket. So the door is open again which a lot of players, I think, men and women in the county cricket circuit, are thinking, how do, how do I get there? Um, I'm sure Sam Northeast, for example, has been thinking that for years. He's
2: going to have a chance this summer, actually, and, and good luck to him. Uh, you, you're right, Izzy, and, and, you know, the, the IPL is obviously the, the opportunity for one or two younger players to, to really groom their skills and, and experience that intensity of what is sort of almost like a parallel international tournament. Tom Curran, for instance, people have said, oh, you shouldn't be going to the IPL, he should be playing for Surrey and getting ready for the, the Test summer, maybe getting a, a, a place in the England Test side. But for me, Tom Curran is an excellent one-day bowler who will learn absolutely reams from playing in the IPL, even if he doesn't play, if he just hangs out with Mitchell Johnson, the Kolkata Knight Riders opening bowler, or Heath Street, their coach, or Sunil Rhine and how he bowls all his varieties, you know, whatever. It, it just is just being around that kind of cricketing brainstorm will encourage and improve Tom Curran no end. The big story, of course, of the last month hasn't really involved England at all. It was ball tampering in South Africa, regarding Australia and it's caused all sorts of kerfuffle as a result because various counties haven't had their overseas players like Cameron Bancroft going to Somerset and obviously the IPL has been seriously disrupted by the absence of Steve Smith and David Warner and we don't know what the, the up, upshot of that all will be with, for Australia ultimately but ball tampering itself has always been a subject that I've been fascinated by. I had a go at it a little bit myself in my county career, but wasn't good enough to exploit it. World exclusive. you got to tamper of the ball. <laughs> but I, You still I, had a year-long ban as well. Oh, you did have a year-long ban. We didn't notice you. <laughs> ha, ha, thank you. I was known as the Reverend, actually, that year, because I only played on Sundays, Sunday league cricket. But, um, you know, I'm interested to find out whether c- ball tampering does exist in county cricket nowadays. So I asked Jack Brooks that very question.
4: I'm, well I haven't got any fingernails so I bite them so I can't pick the ball anyway and any other way you can do it is by biting it when you're not going to get going to be doing that on a cricket pitch <laughs> um, I've had 10 years in the game and it's not something I've been overly aware of in teams I've played there's been a couple of guys I've, I've come across in, in teams that have been the odd, the odd game They'll you'll suddenly start reversing sharply out of nowhere and, and somebody will be aware of something going on but to be honest, it's really quite obvious most of the time, and the umpires are so tight on it that it's almost not worth picking the seam or, or trying to scratch up one side like unnaturally. Because the umpires will be so sharp on it, they know what the ball's going to be sh- should be looking at. They look at it quite often, like you know, when you take wickets or in between overs and whatnot. That um, it's almost not worth it. Really, um, you can you can get it going reversing reasonably naturally if the, if the pitch is if the pitch is quite abrasive. You can sort of try to get it throwing into the dirt and. Find other ways of doing it. And if you're really clever, and if you've got a couple of good ball shiners in the team who tell you to stay off it, keep it dry, and they'll and they'll go to work on it. Um, you know, with 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 normal sort of shining methods, or you know, most cricketers, um, there's a couple of ball shiners, and they'll have sort of sweets in their pockets. but well, I don't think that's an issue overly, um, as long as you're not taking it straight off the sweet and being really obvious with it. If you're just sucking a sweet, and it, you know. It's, Giving you a bit of a sweeter saliva to put on the ball, and I don't think there's a massive issue with that. I know quite a lot of umpires are, are tight on that as well. They're quite obvious with it, but they know that guys eat sweets. They're sometimes asking you for a sweet as well because they're a bit peckish or, or bored or what have you. Um, is,
2: is there a um, is there a technique actually for getting the ball roughed up, not just by you know bouncing it in from the boundary or shying at the stumps, but maybe bowling the ball uh, slightly tilted seam? So that it lands just to the side of the seam rather than on the seam.
4: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the wobble seam method—if you get it right—it quite often just keeps ticking away at one side of the ball around the edges by the seam. Um, And then, obviously, you can do it with cross seam. And most bowlers know when they how they hold the ball, whereabouts it's likely to hit on the ball. Um, So you're going to get—you know—you can get—you can certainly work on one side more than the other naturally just from bowling. And then if you're playing it something like the Oval back end of the summer, like August, when the sun's been out and it's obviously quite a lot of square across the pitch, um, when you're throwing it back into
1: the keeper, you can sort of get it on the bounce, throwing it into the into the dirt and the rough um,
4: and get the ball sort of rough one side and end up <coughs> buffing up and get it reversing. Um, but, I mean, if you look after the ball properly um, and it's not swinging normally, it's quite. it doesn't have to go an awful lot reverse, but sometimes you can... You can, most most bowlers can reverse it quite naturally. Don't have, it doesn't matter what pace you ball, Um, But if the ball's been looked after properly, then it can be a lot easier to get the ball reversing than it will in conventional swing.
2: Is there anything you'd like to see sort of handed back to the bowlers, advantages to the bowlers? Is there one thing that you as a bowling group talk about that might help you ultimately?
4: I'd like to see another bouncer allowed in, in uh, 2020 cricket, so you're allowed two in the over. Um because if you bowl one early in the over, it can get a bit predictable, whereas in 50 over cricket, you are allowed to bowl two, um, and in first class, obviously. It could almost go down a way of, in the future, being allowed to tamper with the ball, and so just to see what happens.
2: So it sounds as if there might be a bit of ball tampering, and I like the fact that Jack Brooks actually recommends it and <laughs> says it should be allowed, because I completely agree with that. Is it, Isabel, I would like to know, and don't take this the wrong way, is there ball tampering in women's cricket?
3: no absolutely not because there's there's no need for it i mean it, the women play predominantly t20 and one day internationals so i mean most of the ball tampering that's going to make any difference is going to come in the red bull game and also the other thing as well why people playing club cricket are making such a clamour about this is because they don't know, they've never seen reverse swing in their life and most women haven't either because you're not going to bowl more than 80 miles per hour and this isn't sl- slating women's cricket, this is a fact. So no, it doesn't and I don't think it's because women are nicer or better people than men. It, it just doesn't, it's just not needed.
2: Do women walk when they nick it, by the way? Do you know non-walkers in the game? You don't have to name them.
3: Oh, I mean, it's some people walk, some people don't. I I was a player that always thought that I would walk and then didn't. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think women. Are... What select?
1: Are you were selective. Oh walker? no, it
3: was in my ideal vision of myself, I would always walk. But then when you know it was a crucial point in the match, and I was very angry that I was given out <laughs> and didn't want to go, I probably didn't. Oh, I hate
2: I hate cricketers like that. I don't care whether they're <laughs> men or women. They they're the
3: worst. You're the worst. <laughs> We are the worst, but I think uh, trying to make that point, apart from my terrible personal um, way of going about things, is that... You know, women aren't better than men in terms of their sort of their ethics or anything. I think a lot of it. That's it, a
4: world excuse.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, nowadays you hear all sorts of things, but I think a lot of it also is is the money, the pressure, et cetera, Involved. As you you know, obviously there's not enough coverage. You know, if they, if we were ball tampering, well, no one's going to pick it up because there aren't any cameras there.
2: Well, you might be wrong about that actually, because I've, as I say, I've just been at, at Middlesex, and they're launching a new website and they've got streaming now of men's and women's games so in fact uh, the Middlesex women's match against the MCC at Lord's on the 24th of April could well be the first women's domestic game which is streamed live on the on the web So technology is is developing a pace in the game and I think before long we're going to get all the counties streaming services and you probably have to pay a subscription for it but you'll be able to watch every county match live. Good luck to all the counties this summer, the the season as I said starts on Friday and don't forget that website for the Cricketer magazine by the way www.thecricketer.com forward slash podcast for your 20% discount off your subscription. Isabel thanks for your attendance today, where are you starting the season?
3: Well, at the heady heights of Lords, um, in the second division, playing Middlesex, playing Northampton, they'll be covering that game. It's supposed to be at Worcester for their first home game of the season, but I think that's sort of big puddle dependent.
1: That's remarkable. Did you see that picture? It was a remarkable picture. Um, I was actually on the, in the, on the cricketer website, the, the, the media day, and they were just in that little bit of grass that wasn't affected by the flood at New Road.
2: So uh, Wellington's required for anybody covering cricket at Worcester. Well, hopefully the weather will clear up and we'll speak to you next week with reports of some decent performances. Anyway, thanks for listening.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network.